0: You're listening to the Slice of MIT podcast, a production of the MIT Alumni Association. David Schwartz. Hi, David. It's Joe McGonigal at MIT. Hi, Joe. Thanks so much for doing this. I've been really looking forward to chatting with you. It's the MIT Alumni Books podcast. Read a little introduction and then uh, jump into the first question. Very good. David N. Schwartz, Ph.D., class of 1980, is the author of The Last Man Who Knew Everything published by Basic Books in December 2017. It's Schwartz's third book, his first two being Ballistic Missile Defense and NATO's Nuclear Dilemmas. David, tell me, why a biography of Fermi now?
1: You know, he was an extremely significant scientist, uh, one of the most significant of the 20th century. You know, he, he's revered by physicists, but he's almost forgotten among the general public. Uh, I was amazed to find that The last English language biography of him was done in 1970. I decided I wanted to set out to write a book that would change that, establish him where I thought he deserved to be.
0: You say his fame has diminished as his legacy has grown. Explain that.
1: Well, his legacy has grown enormously. Practically everywhere he turned, he opened up new fields of physics. A quick example, the weak interactions really are a result of his work on on beta decay and much of what goes on at the Large Hadron Collider today is based on weak interactions and neutrino physics, and the Higgs boson was, of course, uh, an outgrowth of of theories related to weak interaction. So his legacy is enormous, uh, and physicists know him, yet his fame has has really diminished. He wasn't a, a publicity hound. He was sort of diffident when it came to being in the public eye. He was much more comfortable when surrounded by colleagues or students. And so after the war, he had a minor bit of celebrity with the publication of the Smythe Report, which detailed his role in the Manhattan Project. But he didn't really exploit that celebrity, uh, quite deliberately, I think. And so I thought we really needed to remind ourselves about this great scientist who, who's been forgotten.
0: And at least the first half of the book or so is, is really an intellectual history of how this brain, uh, Fermi's brain, formed. Uh, <laughs> yes. You know, Fermi is born in Rome. He, he essentially has an undergraduate education from a mentor who, who tutors him uh, yes. before going to university. And we learn about kind of the strengths and limitations of Italian pre-war uh, university education uh, and, and, yes. and the kind of limits of their libraries for him uh, as he devoured everything.
1: He was someone who had, first of all, an extraordinary foundation in basic physics that he got, as you said, through this mentor that he met when he was 13. So by the time he was 18, he had mastered all of classical physics, and he had done it rigorously and grinded it out. He just read every book he could find, including a 4,000-page treatise of all of classical physics. So when he arrived at university, he knew classical physics completely and comprehensively. And then uh, he went and taught himself relativity and quantum theory to the extent that it was understood in those days, in 1918, 1919, 1920. He was self-taught, had an enormous ability to integrate all this material. He had a tenacious curiosity about things. And he had this ability, which he developed during this period, of stripping down problems to the simplest form and being able to solve them using a toolkit that he had developed during this period. Watching him become Fermi, as, as, as it were, was a fascinating thing for me as, as a writer.
0: Tell us the story of Fermi's entrance exam to university in Pisa, where he was uh, suspected of cheating.
1: Yes. Well, I'm not sure he was suspected of cheating as explicitly, but they certainly wanted to see who had written in this exam. It was an exam that discussed the physics of a vibrating rod and analyzed it in terms of uh, of fairly advanced physics using eigenvectors and the Fourier transforms. It was the kind of, of treatment that you would expect from a graduate student, not from an undergrad who's entering university. So the the examiner... Called him in. It's not clear whether he called him in to to, to grill him and make sure that was he had he had actually done that, or whether it was to congratulate him. And maybe it was both. But in any case, the examiner ended up saying to him that he was convinced that Fermi would become a very very important scientist. It's one of the legendary exams ever ever submitted to the Scuola Normale Superiore, Italy's most most prestigious
0: school. Today we have the archive in the physics world of planting your flag on intellectual property online before you've published a preprint uh, website. <laughs> Talk about the frustrations uh, Fermi and others had in holding their uh, their turf 100 years ago.
1: That is a fascinating subject. Fermi had some problems with this early on. In the book, I describe how when he published his uh, so-called statistics, which were a way of integrating Pauli's Exclusion Principle into Statistical Mechanics. About three or four months later, Dirac published a very similar piece, and Fermi was quite upset because Dirac made no mention of Fermi's article. In those days, preprints weren't really very commonly used. I think a few years later, when Fermi decided to start bombarding elements with, with neutrons to see if he could irradiate them, he began to use preprints as a way of establishing priority you know sent those preprints out uh, by fast mail to all the major research centers in Europe and in the United States. So very quickly, he began to use the preprint process to establish priority of discovery. That was very important to him. He was a very competitive guy. And during this particular period, in fact, he was most concerned that the Curies or Rutherford would beat him to the punch on some of these things. He felt he was in hot competition and used the preprints to further his own, uh, his own claims.
0: Often were the word tentative in the title,
1: <laughs> yes, he used the word tentative for with um with the theory of beta decay because he was a little concerned that there was no proof to his theory at all, although it made perfect sense in fact the the legend is that it was it was that particular paper was rejected by nature magazine for being too um speculative. But as I say, and I'm not sure, I, I, I'm not sure that that
0: legend is actually true. You focus on on some of his regrets, uh, his 1934 kind of "quote unquote" discovery of transuranic elements, but he he'd really discovered fission. Is that correct?
1: Yes, that is. Uh, but he didn't know it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he didn't know it at the time. He later later in his life, he referred to himself as the man who missed fission. He had been irradiating uranium with neutrons. And the byproducts were very difficult to analyze. It, you know, it took the greatest radiochemist in the world four years to understand what Fermi was looking at. The radiochemist that he had working with him was perfectly competent, but didn't understand that there were much smaller, much lighter elements in the byproducts that could only have come from the fission of uranium. They thought, in fact, that they were looking at heavier elements, and Fermi got some publicity for having discovered supposedly heavier elements than uranium. Uh, It turned out that that was wrong. And he always regretted having missed it. Uh, But, you know, in retrospect, we're probably quite fortunate that he did, because if he had understood what he was doing in 1934, that he had actually split the uranium atom, It might well be that the fascists would have been the first to get uh, a nuclear weapon, and that would have been a disaster.
0: It would have been the Rome Project, not the Manhattan Project.
1: Yes, and it would have been a catastrophe. So we're all, I think, fairly lucky that Fermi didn't realize what he was doing at the time.
0: I wonder if you can just take us to the night of the the Trinity test in Los Alamos, and it exemplifies your frustrations really with finding a lot about Fermi's emotions and his feelings. He didn't write, he didn't keep a diary, he didn't write much, but what did you discover about his emotions that day and in the aftermath?
1: It's very interesting. Before the test, the day before the test, he seemed to be in a, in a jovial mood and was uh, making bets with physicists about whether the Atmosphere would actually ignite during the Trinity test, which there were some some army uh, police who, who overheard this and got panic stricken and, and went to the head of the uh, of the test and w- with their with their worries and Bainbridge, who was who was the head of the test, called Fermion and scolded him for having unnecessarily scared people. So he was sort of in a jovial mood beforehand. And then the test occurred, and he did the famous uh, paper strips experiment where he he waited for the blast wave to to hit him and allowed some paper strips to scatter in the blast wave and measured how far they went and was able to do a back-of-the-envelope calculation as to how high the yield of the test was, and it was reasonably accurate. It was accurate, certainly within an order of magnitude, and he was quite happy with that. I think afterward that that day he began to get more and more, um, I guess the word would be um, frenetic and um, and a little bit uh, off kilter. And in fact, you know, he loved to drive, and he drove back to Los Alamos with Sam Allison, who was a close colleague of his. And he asked Allison to to drive because he felt that he couldn't uh, concentrate on the road; he was too distracted. Although he did very interestingly, they had a flat on their way back. Uh, to Los Alamos, and Allison went ahead to find a gas station, and Fermi stayed behind with the flat tire, and drove up about 15 minutes later, explained to Allison that a physicist had passed with a uh, canister of argon gas, and they had used argon gas to fill up the, uh, the tire. So even at that point, he was he was not completely without uh, a sense of humor, but I think it, it, it did upset him. He didn't talk about it ever. But if you read the memoir of his wife, you definitely get the sense that he understood the enormity and the magnitude of of what he had just witnessed.
0: Your cover photo on this book, it's a marvelous design. It's a telling photo. You remind us again and again through the book that Fermi liked to run ahead of the pack.
1: Yes. (laughs) He was very competitive, and he was a real outdoorsman. It's a lovely photo. It was taken by Leona Libby, one of Fermi's co- close colleagues during the Chicago years, they just adored each other. And um, it's clear that you know he, she stood in front of them as they were running, and, and she snapped the photo. And we were very lucky to get one of Leona's uh, sons to give us permission to use that photo, because I think that it captures a lot of Fermi's personality.
0: You do wonder aloud, though, whether whether or not at some point in all of his rushing um, back and forth during experiments, hol- holding the, what was it, the tubes to his chest, uh, yeah. and then he dies of stomach cancer in, at yeah. in age 53.
1: It's not clear that it was caused by radioactivity, but it's possible, certainly. He is the only one of the Rome group who died in these circumstances. But, you know, as I say, He was also front and center on these experiments and probably shouldered the lion's share of the actual physical work. Now, of course, people like Amaldi and Rossetti and others ran up and down the hall, too, and were exposed. But it was really, I think it was Fermi who, who bore the brunt of it. But, you know, he wanted to be out in front. He wanted to be the leader.
0: In terms of his adopted country, what, what did you learn about, did he have a patriotic bone for the United States in his body?
1: Oh, yes. I think he was a real patriot. He came to love the United States very early on. His first trip to the United States was 1930. And I believe that from that point on, he wanted to move to the United States. He loved the openness of the United States. He loved the relative lack of hierarchy. He also noticed that there was a lot more money in physics in the United States than there was in Italy. The fact that they welcomed him in to the most secret project that the U.S. military had going on at the time, he really appreciated. And in turn, he was incredibly loyal to his country. I mean, to the point where he just adopted all sorts of Americanisms. He wanted to be called Hank because he heard that he knew that Enrico was the Italian equivalent of Henry, and he wanted to know what people in the United States are called if their name is Henry, and he heard Isn't that, would, that would be Hank. So he, he, he suggested that maybe people should call him Hank. Well, of course, no one called him Hank, but that's, that's the way he viewed the United States. He wanted to be as American as he could.
0: It's the MIT Alumni Association. We have to ask you about two other uh, alumni Uh, you chronicle, Vannevar Bush, of course, 1916 PhD from MIT, and uh, Richard Feynman, 1939 graduate. Uh, Who had more of an impact on this story?
1: Oh, well, Vannevar Bush is probably one one of the most significant people in the entire Manhattan Project. He was was a, a good scientist, but probably... One of the best administrators that FDR had, he had a gift for organizational structure and knew how to push an organization to do exactly what it needed to do on time and under budget. He was gifted that way, and he had the complete confidence of the president. He's a central figure in the Manhattan Project. Feynman is not a central figure in the Manhattan Project as such. He was, you know, he was in charge of some of the calculations for critical mass, and he directed a bevy of computers. Now, computers in those days were women who operated calculating machines, and he directed them in all the calculations required for establishing what the critical mass of uranium and plutonium would be. You know, and everyone understood that Feynman was a brilliant guy, and Fermi and Feynman got along very, very well. I'm not sure that Fermi and Bush really met each other very often, but Fermi and Feynman... Knew each other very well at the Manhattan Project and remained very close after the war. would discuss all sorts of things related particularly to the experiments that Fermi was running on pion proton
0: collisions in the nucleus. You talk about computers being human back in the 1930s. Um, Of course, the title of the book, The Last Man Who Knew Everything, you do kind of bemoan the fact that it's impossible for anybody to know theoretical physics and experimental physics as intimately as Enrico Fermi did in the early 1900s in 2017 due to computing, right, and just the massive computing power and the massive amount of understanding required to understand the computers.
1: Well, I think that's certainly one of the aspects. These computers are enormously powerful, and the data that they crunch is beyond anyone's comprehension, uh, beyond anyone's comprehension. So that's one aspect of it. But I also think that experiments have gotten so big that it's very difficult for, and so so long, I mean, these experiments take years and years to to set up and run. It's virtually impossible for, you know, any one of the Three or four thousand people on a particular experiment at CERN to have the time to devote to really understanding the theory deeply enough so that they can make a theoretical contribution and you know for their part, theorists it would take far too much time for a theorist to understand all the details of these tremendous experiments that go on at CERN. So I think the fields of physics the field of physics is now pretty much permanently divided between theorists and experimentalists.
0: Customers who bought this book on Amazon also bought books the algorithm tells me by Carl Sigmund, Walter Isaacson, Paul Halpern, Jean Lacare. Is the algorithm doing its job?
1: <laughs> I don't know why Jean Lacare is in there to the extent that, you know, Fermi contributed at the after the war to the hydrogen bomb and, you know, was involved at that level in the Cold War, I guess there's some relation, but I don't really see very much. Otherwise, you know, the people that you've mentioned are all fine writers, and look Carré, of course, is a brilliant writer as well, and uh, it's wonderful to be lumped with all those people, frankly, uh, but, you know, I know that Paul Halperin has just published this wonderful book about Wheeler and Feynman that I I have on my my nightstand ready to read, I've always wondered how the two of them got along because they were so different, Wheeler being a very formal, quiet man and Feynman being a bit of a gregarious, so wild man, sort of a clown when he wasn't doing brilliant physics. Uh, but apparently, the two of them got along just
0: famously. Uh, so I'm looking forward to that book. Okay, so you've answered my next question of what what are you reading right now? Uh, but may, maybe after uh, readers finish uh, the last man who knew everything, what what what's the next uh, recommendation from
1: you? Oh, the next recommendation from me is I I'm a big fan of Leonard Susskind's uh, books on 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 physics called uh, the theoretical minimum. There are three volumes now. One is on. Uh, classical physics. One is on quantum theory, and one is the new ones just come out on special relativity and field theory. And those are the for someone who wants to to do physics, but doesn't you know want to go through the 20 or 30 textbooks required to to have a graduate level understanding. These are perfect introductions, and they're they're very clear. I mean, I'll give you an example. He goes through calculus in, in five pages, and it's a beautiful, beautiful exposition, and it's all a physicist needs to know about calculus in five pages. It's just beautiful. So I really recommend those books. Those are books that are just wonderful.
0: Well, kudos c- to you for not including a single equation in this book either. <laughs> I try to keep the physics as accessible as possible to the layperson, David N. Schwartz is the author of The Last Man Who Knew Everything, published by Basic Books in December 2017. David, thanks so much for joining me.
1: Uh, It's been a pleasure. Thank you.